0: Last week we started the first main theme that Paul deals with here in the book of Romans, which is sin. And Paul wants everyone to know that each one of us are not only a sinner, but because we're sinners, we deserve and will receive the wrath of God. Now in this section on sin, Paul addresses three different groups. And he kind of starts from what we would perceive in our worldly perspective as the worst group. And it moves towards what we would look to as the best group. Now the first group, or the worst group, is the uh, immoral heathen. This is the group that we looked at last week, those who suppressed, those who substituted, those who ignored the truth of God, and as a result, they went against what was the natural order that God had designed for them, and uh, they gave themselves over to all sorts of wickedness and vile uh, sins and debased thinking, and they approved of others who practiced those sinful things as well. And the main thing that Paul wanted to get across was God's wrath is going to be poured out upon those who live that way and never come to a repentant place and accept Christ. So Paul starts with the worst group, the immoral heathen, wanting everyone to know they're sinners who are going to be judged by God. And the second group that Paul addresses is the self-righteous moralists. Those who think that they're better than others, that you know they're moral basically, that they're a good person, um, and that their morality and good works will ultimately save them and spare them from God's judgment. The third group that Paul addresses are the religious reliant. They, they rely on their religion, not on a relationship with God. They think their affiliation with the religion and, you know, whatever they believe with that religion or their works associated with that religion, that is what is going to save them, not a relationship with Christ. Now, it's important to note that both of these groups, the uh, self righteous moralists, the religious people, you know, they they believe that they are better than the immoral heathen, and they also believe that they're better than most people, but they would have agreed with what Paul said in chapter one about the immoral heathen. They'd be the first one to say, Preach it, Paul. Yeah, you tell those wicked people the sin that they're doing, and they deserve to be judged. You know, let God just wipe them out right now. I mean, they would have agreed with everything that Paul had shared about those immoral people practicing their immoral lifestyle. But something important to note is they don't have a proper understanding of their own sin, of themselves. They see everyone kind of beneath them, oh, we're good, we're moral, we're religious, and we're better, and they don't recognize what the Bible actually says about them. They don't have a, a biblical, a godly perspective on themselves. They see themselves as good people who do not deserve God's judgment. And so Paul wants to share with these two groups something very important. You too, just like the immoral heathen, are sinners. And you too, just like the immoral heathen, deserve the judgment of God. Now, the self-righteous moralists and the religious reliant, they have different issues, and so Paul goes about uh, speaking to these groups in different ways. And so this morning, we're going to look at the moralists and the problems that they have and what Paul shares with them and how we should share with them as well. And then next week, we'll look at those who struggle with this connection with religion but haven't really recognized the importance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure that all of us have encountered a self-righteous moralist at some point in time in your life. Many of you were that self-righteous moralist yourself. These are the people that, if you ask them, you know what, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before Jesus Christ, why should God let you into heaven? And their answer would be, because I'm a good person or because my good works have outweighed my bad works. They basically think I'm pretty moral, and especially in comparison to those immoral heathens, I'm really moral. And so their concept is, I will escape the judgment of God. I should be allowed into heaven because I'm a good person. They see themselves that way, and they view the majority of the world as kind of, beneath them, that they're superior, they're better, they're more moral in their behavior. And that leads to, oftentimes, a very self-righteous, holier-than-thou attitude. And, and they start judging others. You know, I'm so much better. I mean, how dare they do that? And, you know, can't they be more like me? And they're, they're just kind of pointing the finger and judging all those around them. And they've bought into a lie that since they sin differently, or perhaps not as offensively, as others, that they're okay. My sin's not as bad, and so if I stand before God, I'll be all right. Or my sin is balanced out by the good works that I do, so if I stand before God, I'll be fine. I'm not as bad as that immoral heathen, so I don't deserve God's judgment. You know, one of the big problems that so many in the world have, especially that are in this category of moralist, is they don't understand what god's standard of judgment is they've kind of established their own standard of what they deem is the standard that should be when they stand before god and they think well i'm fine based on the standard that i have laid out i'll be good when i go before god but the reality is they're not going to be judged by their standard they're going to be judged by god's standard and they don't understand what god's standard is you see god's standard isn't oh you're good outweighs your bad that's all that matters But that's what they're thinking. If my good is, is, you know, more on the scale of life, I have more good than bad, then, then I'll be okay. You know, God's standard is perfection, which means that you can't even do one sin. It doesn't matter how small. It doesn't matter how big. One sin is all it takes for you and I to deserve the judgment of God. But they want to think, well, you know, yeah, I did this sin, but then I did this really good thing. And doesn't that kind of balance it out? And, oh, I did that sin, and then I did this other good sin. so, So they kind of think, well, I'll be okay. But that's not how God judges. He judges based off of any sin that we have done. And no amount of good works will ever make you innocent. And that's the thing that I think they miss. They're guilty. Oh, yeah, I know I'm guilty of this sin, but I've done this good work. Doesn't that make me innocent? No, it doesn't make you innocent. Nothing good that you do is going to make you innocent of what you've already done. You're still guilty no matter what. That's never going to change. And so when you stand before the just judge of the universe, he must judge your sin because you're guilty. And they miss that very important truth. And so as Paul is going to share with the self-righteous moralists, he wants them to understand God's judgment And so in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul's going to give us six principles of judgment. He wants them and us to understand the way in which God is going to deal with and judge this group of people so that they can understand that their view of God's judgment is wrong, their view of how they would get into heaven is totally skewed, and that they need to understand how God judges and who judges. God judges. And it's very important for us to understand as well because as we seek to reach this world, we come across a lot of people in this category. And we need to be able to start, as we looked at last week, when people don't know the bad news, they're never going to recognize how good the good news is. And this group can be very difficult to witness to because how do you help someone see they need a savior when they don't believe it? I'm a good person. I don't need a savior. My good outweighs my bad. I'm okay with God. I'm fine. I'm not going to be judged. The good news of the gospel doesn't pertain to them in their mindset because they think, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need his sacrifice? Look at my life. I'm moral. So we have to start with the judgment of God and how he judges sinners so that they can recognize they are under God's judgment. They do need Jesus Christ and hopefully come to accept him. So let's see what we can learn here from the six principles of judgment that Paul shares with us. The first one we see in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says this. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. The first thing that Paul wants these self-righteous moralists to understand is that they are inexcusable. The Greek word translated inexcusable means without any defense or excuse. So what Paul is saying is, hey, you self-righteous moralists, when you stand before God, you cannot have a defense for why God should not judge you. And the reason for why you're inexcusable, Paul tells us, whoever you are who judge, for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself For you who judge, practice the same things. Now, we already noted that the self-righteous moralist has a tendency to pass judgment on other people, but Paul wants to bring out something even more. Hey, the judgment that you give on somebody for some sin that they do, you're committing the same sins. And so Paul wants them to realize this reality of as you judge them, you're ultimately bringing condemnation on yourself because you do the same thing that you're judging other people for doing. In Connecticut City, 53 residents of a certain neighborhood signed a petition to stop reckless driving on their streets. The police set up a watch there. They were looking for that. They caught five people on that weekend. And all five people were the five of the 53 that signed the petition. They're saying, oh, how dare people drive recklessly in our neighborhood? We should judge them. We should get police out here to arrest them. And yet they're part of the group. They're doing the exact same thing that they're wanting to judge everybody else for. So what Paul is communicating here is that when you self-righteous moralists judge other people for the sinful conduct they do, and then you do it yourselves, you are condemning yourself. Because through their judgment, you show you know that it's sin. You know that it's wrong. You wouldn't be judging it if you didn't know it was wrong. And the fact that you now do it shows that you are inexcusable. You can't stand before God and say, I didn't know it was sinful. I didn't know it was wrong. Uh, you, you You can't judge me for this. Well, you judging others because they did it shows the fact that you actually recognize that. When President Richard Nixon was being investigated for Watergate, someone said this. Yes, the president should resign. He has lied to the American people time and time again and betrayed their trust. Since he has admitted guilt, there is no reason to put the American people through an impeachment. He will serve absolutely no purpose in finishing out his term. The only possible solution is for the president to save some dignity and resign. The person who made this statement was Bill Clinton. And this judgment that Bill Clinton gives to President Nixon ultimately became a judgment to himself when he had his whole sex scandal in the White House and many people came to him and said, why don't you do exactly what you said President Nixon should do? Why don't you resign? Why don't you step down? Why don't you not put the American people through this? You're guilty. But he did not want to hold to the standard that he wanted to hold President Nixon to and he did not do that. But this is what Paul is saying is, hey, as you cast judgment on someone else's sin and do the same thing, you prove to be guilty, and you, when standing before God, are not going to be able to say, hey, I didn't know. You know, so often, when we do the same sin as others, we can look at their sin and see it's something that's so bad, but you know, it's not so bad when we do it. We kind of just sugarcoat it or we, we, we rename it something different. But, you know, it's interesting how we view sin in our own life versus the lives of others. Ray Pritchard said this about our hypocrisy in judging others. The tendency towards hypocrisy shows itself in many subtle ways. Have you ever noticed how we like to rename our sins? We do that by ascribing the worst motives to others while using other phrases to let ourselves off the hook. If you do it, you're a liar. I merely stretch the truth. If you do it, you're cheating. I am bending the rules. You lose your temper. I have righteous anger. You're a jerk. I'm having a bad day. You have a critical spirit. I bluntly tell the truth. You gossip. I share prayer requests. You curse and swear. I let off steam. You know, all of us are guilty of this reality of kind of renaming sin so that when we do it, it sounds so much more pleasant and right. And, you know, everyone else who does that, they're horrible. But, you know, when I do it, it's not really a sin. It's not really bad. And we, you know, we just want to let ourselves off the hook. But the reality is we're lying to ourselves. When we do it, it's just as bad. When we do it, it's just as sinful. And if we know it's wrong in someone else, it proves that we know it's wrong when we do it as well. William MacDonald said this, Fallen man can see faults in others more readily than in himself. Things hideous and repulsive in the lives of others seem quite respectable in his own. But the fact that he can judge sins in others shows that he knows the difference between right and wrong. If he knows it is wrong for someone to steal his wife, then he knows that it's wrong for him to steal someone else's wife. Therefore, when someone commits the very sin he condemns in others, he leaves himself without excuse. The sins of cultured people are essentially the same as those of the heathen. So, the first principle of judgment that Paul wants us to understand and especially the, the moralists to grasp is this When you judge sin in others that you do yourself, you are inexcusable to claim you don't deserve God's judgment. You know, and what Paul wrote in chapter one, that would have gained the approval of these moralists, but he's taking that and he's kind of turning the tables on them and he's using the same argument and showing, hey, you're guilty as well. Oh yes, you'll judge them and say, right on, Paul, you tell those wicked sinners what they're doing's wrong. And then Paul just brings it, you do the same thing. That means what you're doing is wrong as well. How are you any better than them? The second principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is in verse 2, which says this But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Paul wants the moralists to know something very important God's judgment that he is going to pour out upon everyone is according to truth. This, this phrase translated according to truth with a legal term and had the idea of, of according to the facts of the case, that you're going to be judged based on the facts, you're going to be judged based on truth, not on some lie or some other thing. And, you know, this is something that's important because if you go into a human courtroom, you know, a judge has a a limited uh, understanding or, or way of ascertaining the truth because he has to depend on witnesses. Witnesses who oftentimes lie. You know, they might stand and say, are you going to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help your God, yes I am, but it doesn't mean that they actually will. And so, you know, he can only really ascertain truth or false based on, you know, true testimony that people give, and sometimes people get off. Sometimes people get away with, you know, as we have our term, get away with murder or any sin, because within the courtroom, the judge didn't actually know the truth and he didn't know who really did what. Now, the reality is God doesn't need a jury. God doesn't need witnesses. Why? Because he sees every sin. He's aware of what everyone does. He will be able to judge according to truth Every single thing that every person has ever committed, has ever thought, because he is fully aware of it, and there's no way to deceive him, there's no way to get some lawyer to use some fancy terms and, you know, confuse him. At the end of the day, he knows what you've done, and you're going to be judged based on truth. Now, this is only good news if you're innocent. If you're innocent, great. I want the truth to come out because I haven't done anything wrong. But if you're guilty, this isn't good news. When you're guilty, you're hoping, man, maybe my lawyer can do something magical here and you know the judge won't know what I've done and we can twist things around and I can get off or the jury won't understand how guilty I really am. We're hoping that people won't come to know the truth because we know the truth is we're guilty. The truth is we deserve to be punished and we're hoping to get off. But the reality is God judges according to truth. There is no escaping that. There is no having some ability to lie. Now, the problem with the moralists is they have lied to themselves. They have convinced themselves, I don't deserve the judgment of God. I'm moral. I'm a good person. My good outweighs my bad. I don't deserve this. Well, Paul wants them and us to understand God is not going to judge them based on the lie that they believe about themselves. He's going to judge them based on the truth of what they really are. And this is something as we come in contact with the moralists that we have to try to help them see because so many are self-deceived. So many have honestly bought into the lie that they're good, that they're moral, that they're good outweighs their bad, that that's all they need for a relationship with God to enter heaven, to be forgiven. That's it. And so we have to be the ones that come and reveal to them, no, that's not the standard in which God judges. You see yourself in a way that God does not. You are sinful. You deserve God's judgment and you will receive it. So the second principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is God's judgment is according to truth, And the truth is, everyone is a guilty sinner deserving of God's judgment. The third principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is in verse 3, which says this, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul comes back to the argument that he just used here in verse 1, that these moralists are doing the same uh, sins that they're judging other people for. In verse 1, Paul helps them understand that they have no excuse. They're inexcusable before God because they're judging the same things that they're doing. But now he wants to help them understand another truth. Not only are you inexcusable, but don't think that you're going to escape the judgment of God. Don't buy into that lie. Paul poses a question that the moralist must ask himself. Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? The self-righteous moralist is the first one to judge others, the first one to point the finger and say, yeah, they deserve God's judgment. They over there deserve, oh, look at them doing that. They deserve it. And so Paul points out, if all these people deserve God's judgment and you do the same thing that they're doing, then how can you think that you will escape the judgment of God? I mean, the obvious answer is they're not going to, and he wants them to kind of think logically. You're pointing the finger over here and here and here, but you're doing the same thing, but yet you think for some reason you should escape it, and they should not. He's showing the logical fallacy with their thinking. The third principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is God's judgment on unrepentant sinners is inescapable. You know, one of the biggest lies of the enemy is that you can escape the judgment of God without repenting of your sins and accepting Christ. He he wants us to believe that. It started in the garden and it hasn't stopped. He wants us to believe you can escape God's judgment. You don't have to worry about the consequences of your sin. There's ways of doing it beyond what the Bible says, beyond repentance and beyond acceptance of Christ. that There's other ways, there's other you know, roads that can lead to God, as so many people say. And this is a lie. And Paul wants us to understand there is no escape of God's judgment apart from repentance and acceptance of Christ. That's it. Richard Lenski said this, Paul's purpose is far greater than merely to convict them of unrighteousness. He robs them absolutely must rob them of their moralism and their moralizing because they regard this as the way of escape from God's wrath. You know, when we come to a moralist and we're trying to share with them and we're wanting to communicate the gospel to them, we really have to start with this robbing of their moralism. We have to help them understand this is not something that you can stand before God and be held, you know, justified and righteous for because you feel you're moral. We gotta rob them of that belief that their good outweighs their bad or they're actually a good person before we can help them take the next step to see their need. For Christ. And this is part of that sharing the bad news and working through whoever it is that you're sharing with so you can help them see that they're a sinner deserving of God's judgment. The fourth principle of judgment that Paul shares is in verse four. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Here Paul poses another question a question that these moralists really need to ponder and think about, and it connects with his first three points here. He says, you know what, do you despise the riches of God's goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You know, with this question, Paul wants the moralists to understand they've missed why God is good. They miss why God is forbearing and long-suffering toward them. You see, God will often delay his judgment that we deserve and instead show his goodness and instead show his long suffering. He delays, he puts it off because he's good to us. But oftentimes people mistake this delay of God's judgment, this delay of his or this goodness that he shows as approval of their sin. Oh, God's not judging me. He must think what I'm doing's fine. Or they look at it as, you know what? God's going to continue to allow me to avoid sin or avoid the consequences of it and the judgment of it. It hasn't happened now, so surely it won't happen in the future. You see, the moralist believes that since God has been good to them and hasn't yet poured his judgment on them, they have nothing to worry about. They see God's goodness in delaying his judgment as evidence that they're not ever going to be judged, as evidence that their good works will ultimately save them. But that's not true. In this question, Paul clarifies why God is good and why he delays his judgment upon people who deserve it. And he tells us it's because the goodness of God leads you to repentance. That's the purpose. God is good. God is long suffering. God is waiting. God is saying, yes, you deserve my judgment right this moment, but in my goodness, I'm going to wait. In my goodness, I'm going to Delay the wrath that you deserve because I want you to come to repentance. I desire that all should come to repentance, that all should come and accept me. Tom Constable said this, they should not misinterpret God's failure to judge them already as an indication that they are blameless. They should realize that God is simply giving them time to repent. God's goodness in delaying judgment does not mean that people are okay with God and won't be judged. It just means how much God loves you, that he's willing to delay what you deserve because he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to repent because he knows the only way that you're ever going to be freed and forgiven is if you come in repentance to him and seek him to save and forgive you. So God is giving time, but it's not an endless time We know for sure that the time runs out the day that you die. And we got to recognize that he, in his goodness, is saying, I'm delaying, but it's not forever. There's going to come a moment where finally it's done and you've never made the choice. And then at that point, my judgment must be poured out upon you. Charles Spurgeon said this, It seems to me that every morning when a man wakes up still unrepentant and finds himself out of hell, the sunlight seems to say, I shine on thee yet another day, as that in this day thou mayest repent. When your bed receives you at night, I think it seems to say, I will give you another night's rest, that you may live to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Every mouthful of breath that comes to the table says, I have to support your body, that still you may have space for repentance. Every time you open your Bible, the pages say, We speak with you that you may repent. I love this quote because it just shows that in every area of life, from breath to food to whatever God gives to the unrepentant sinner, his goodness is saying, I give you another day that you may repent. I'm offering this opportunity, another 24 hours for you, that you might come to me, that you might choose to accept me, that you will seek forgiveness from me. Now Paul starts this question with the word despise. Do you despise the riches of God's goodness? And the answer for the moralist is, yes, they do. They demonstrate it in the fact that they're not willing to repent. Because he says the goodness leads to repentance. So are you despising his goodness because you're not repenting? Every day he pours it on you and you just despise it. You don't do anything with it. The purpose is to bring you to repentance, but yet you think it just demonstrates that you're okay with him. You think it demonstrates that you can just keep living the way you live and nothing's gonna happen. brings up the fourth principle of judgment that Paul wants to share with us. When you despise God's goodness, it leads to judgment because you won't repent. You know, many people in this world misunderstand the goodness of God toward the wicked, and a lot of them are in the church. Why doesn't God just strike that person down? Look at what they're doing. They're so deserving of his judgment, and that is true, they are, and guess what? So are you, and so am I. God's good Because he wants them to repent. God's good because he loves them just like he loved us. And aren't you glad that he didn't strike you down the very first sin that you had? Or we all be in hell right now. He labels us. He delayed it for us so that we could come to know him. And that's what he's doing for the world. And I get saddened as a church when we look out and think, Lord, why don't you just judge them all? Instead of thinking, Lord, thank you that you're still gracious. Thank you that you're still good. And as a church, may we fulfill the Great Commission and share the gospel to these people who desperately need it so hopefully they can come to repentance because each day you're showing them their goodness by giving them another opportunity to repent. So as the Lord gives us time and them time, let's not waste it. They waste it all the time because so often they're clueless of the fact that they're wasting time. They don't recognize the goodness of God. They despise it. We know what it is. And so we recognize, hey, the time is short. Let us take advantage of it and proclaim the gospel so that people can come to know Christ. The fifth principle of God's judgment is seen in verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, You are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The moralists, they ultimately despise the goodness of God for two reasons. They have a hard heart, and this word here, uh, impenitent, means unrepentant. So they have a hard and unrepentant heart. That's why they're despising the goodness of God. That's why they're not willing to accept Christ. They're hard-hearted and they're unrepentant. And now Paul You know, reveals that because of that, because you're hard-hearted, because you're unrepentant, because you're unwilling to get right with God, something is happening to you right now that you need to be aware of. They are treasuring up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This term treasuring up means to gather, accumulate, store up something. Now, you know, they would probably think, oh yeah, we're we're treasuring up lots of things. (laughs) With all of our good works, man, we are in the good books with God. We're treasuring up all sorts of merit with God. Every good thing we do is giving us good merit so that those bad things we do, it won't really matter because our merit's going to be so big that it's going to balance things out and God's going to let us in. And so I'm sure most of the moralists, when they hear a word of treasure up or store up, oh yes, I'm storing up lots of good with God. But Paul wants them to realize, yeah, you're storing stuff up all right. It isn't good though. Every time that you reject the goodness of God that leads to repentance, every time that you choose not to repent, you're not storing up some merit with God. You are storing up wrath. And this wrath is going to be at a particular time. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Paul says in verse 18 of last chapter and now he wants them to understand hey you guys would agree the immoral heathen deserves wrath but guess what so do you and this is what they miss oh i don't deserve god's wrath only that group and that group does no 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 so do you you deserve the wrath of god as well because your hard and unrepentant heart paul says the day of wrath and revelation Of the righteous judgment of God. That's when it's going to happen. You're storing up. It's growing more and more and more. Well, when am I going to have to pay this bill? When is it going to be required of me? It's going to be required, Paul says, in the day in wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, which is the final judgment. The book of Revelation speaks about it in chapter 20, when we stand before Jesus, the righteous judge, and he sits on his great white throne. And that's going to be the day that we're going to have to face him. I want to read what it says. It's a very sobering passage of scripture. Verse 11 of chapter 20 of Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Each person The Bible is very clear. It's going to stand before Jesus, the righteous judge. And you know, this passage brings up something that's a scary thought, that we have books for many numerous books. What's in these books? Every single sin you've ever done, thought, acted out, it's recorded. It's written down. Piles of books of your life and all the sin that you've done. And you're going to be judged based on every single one of those things. That's why Paul tells the moralists, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Each sin that you commit is another recorded thing in this book, and these books just start to grow. The longer you wait, the more you delay. Each day, each year goes by, and now your wrath that's coming upon you grows, because your sin has grown, and what you've done against God has grown. But thank God there is another book. We're told it's called the book of life. And everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, their name is written in the book of life. And so when you stand before the righteous judge, you're going to be judged based on one of those books. It's either going to be based on the book of life, or it's going to be based on the books that you have accumulated through your life, through all the sins that you've done. And if you stand before Jesus and have accepted Him as your Savior, He can say, I paid for these. We don't even have to open these up. We don't have to deal with these. They're done. They're taken care of. I died for them. You accepted me. Your name's in the book of life. Come and enter heaven. But those who have had hard hearts in this life, those who were unrepentant in this life, those who never made a choice to accept Jesus Christ, they will stand before him and their name will not be in the book of life. And so they will have to be judged based on the numerous books of all the sins that they've committed. And we're told that they will be cast in to the lake of fire, to hell, for an eternal punishment. The fifth principle of judgment that Paul shares with us Our sin is storing up God's wrath and it will be poured out on us on the day of God's righteous judgment if we don't repent and accept Jesus. You know, what we read in Revelation 20, it's sobering. We often don't even want to think about it. We often don't want to think about the judgment that's coming upon those who we love, those who we know have not accepted Jesus Christ. But I hope that this passage doesn't, you know, just make us, I just don't want to think about it. We should think about it. We should realize what's coming, and hopefully it should stir us up. It should motivate us. It should help us recognize, hey, who knows how much time they have left, but I want to be that person who shares the truth with them so that hopefully they will know the bad news that they are sinners and God's judgment is coming and the good news of what Jesus Christ has done so that they can accept him and be saved and escape what's coming escape the wrath of God because there's only one way to do that and for many they don't know the answer they got a disease they don't know the cure but we have it and so often we're not willing to share so often you know maybe I'll just put it off another day they might not have another day and the reality of what's coming I pray gives us greater boldness to proclaim the good news of the gospel the sixth principle of judgment that Paul shares is in verses six through ten who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those by patient continuance and doing good seek glo- for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul wants the moralists and us to understand God's going to render to each one according to his deeds. The Greek word translated render means to to pay back, to repay someone. So God is going to pay back, give us ultimately what we deserve based on what we do. Each person is going to receive what we do, uh, what we deserve. We already saw that God's going to judge in truth. He's a righteous, just judge. He's going to give everyone what we deserve. And as I mentioned before, that's great if you're innocent. But it's not good when you're guilty. We are we will get what we deserve. We will not escape it. Now the moralist, this was very important for them to understand because they thought, "Oh, deserve? Great." I deserve God's blessing. Look at how moral I am. Look at how much better I am than that person and that person over there. I mean, surely I'm deserving of goodness from God, not wrath from God. Surely I'm deserving of blessing, not judgment. They've convinced themselves of that. Because ultimately they just compare themselves with the worst of humanity and then they think, I'm so good. Instead of comparing themselves with God's perfection and realize, I fall very short. But Paul wants them to know, no, no, no. You don't deserve goodness. You don't deserve blessing. You deserve judgment. And that's what you're going to receive. And Paul gives two lists. And you really can only be on one or the other. They think they're on both. You know, I got a little bit of sin here and I got some goodness there. And, you know, one will outweigh the other and I'll ultimately end. No, you're either in one category or the other. Which one is going to be? One list is a sin list. To those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man, and does evil. Now the Bible makes very clear, this is all of us. We're all on this list. All of us are guilty. We fall under this. We're self-seeking. We don't obey the truth and unrighteousness. Paul's going to end this whole section in chapter 3 of, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody is in the same category, whether you're the immoral sinner, whether you're the moralist, whether you're the religious, we all fit in the same place. But there's another list that Paul gives, the list of perfect righteous living. The blessing of God is going to come to that. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, and glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. Now the reality is, There's only ever been one person that can put himself on this list. Only ever been one person who's done it all right, who's done it all perfect, who's never made a mistake, who's never sinned. And that one person is Jesus Christ. And that was so important for us because guess what? None of us could do it. None of us could meet the perfect standard. And that's why God said, I'm going to meet it myself. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to keep it. He came to do it perfectly. And he did. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, something that All of us couldn't do. But he didn't stop there. Because he was sinless, he now was able to do something for us that we so desperately needed. Now I am going to sacrifice myself to pay for your sin, to pay for every single time that you did not meet the perfect standard of God. I met it, and now I'm going to pay for the fact that you have not and are guilty. I'm going to take the judgment that you deserve because you're guilty so that you do not have to face that judgment. You know, some people read this list and they think, oh, Paul's saying that salvation is by works and judgment is by works. No, Paul's not even dealing with salvation yet. He's just dealing with judgment and he's dealing with how God judges sin, not how God saves a sinner. And he's just showing, yes, the Bible's truly consistent. If you're perfect, you could gain righteousness. If you're perfect, you could gain God's approval. The problem is, None of us can meet the standard. That's our issue. You know, the law, there's nothing wrong with it. The standard, there's nothing wrong with it. But the Bible says it's our tutor. It pointed us to our need for Jesus because all it tells us is you failed, you failed, you failed. None of us meet it. That's the problem we have. If we could uphold it, yeah, we'd be righteous and we'd have a right standing, but we don't and we can't. We're guilty. Paul wants the moralist to recognize you're guilty. You think you're so good, but you know that you're also bad, and you're guilty because you're bad. The sixth principle of judgment that Paul shares with us, God will judge each person according to what we deserve, and we all deserve the judgment because we are all guilty sinners. You know, those who are moralists have bought into a very dangerous lie. I'm a good person, and because I'm a good person, I don't deserve the judgment of God. And so Paul wants them to grasp how and who and why God judges. So he shares these six principles of judgment so that they can understand, hey, where you think you're at in your relationship with God, where you think your eternity is going to be is completely wrong. Because you are in the same boat as those people you're looking at, as the immoral, wicked heathen. And you think, yeah, they deserve hell. Yeah, they deserve the judgment of God. Well, Paul's saying, now let me point the finger back at you because you deserve God's wrath. You deserve hell. You deserve the judgment of God just as much as them. Why? Because you are just as guilty because you are also a sinner. Charles Colson said this, The gospel is good news, but Jesus never said it was easy news. The central truth of the cross is death before life, repentance before reward. Before the gospel can be the good news of redemption, it must be the bad news of the conviction of sin. As we share the gospel with the moralists who believe that their good will outweigh their bad, we have to help them see that's not true you got to start with the fact that you're a sinner. you got to recognize that you will receive the judgment of God. That is what you need saved from. That is why Jesus came, because that is where we, each one of us are at. And realize it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. I think too often Christians are like the moralists in the way in which they reach out to people. I'm so much better than you. Why can't you just be like me? I mean, why are you such a horrible sinner? Why can't you just be a better, more moral person like I am? And then you'll be right with God. No, that's not what makes you right with God. What makes you right with God is repenting and accepting what Christ has done for you. And so we need to recognize, hey, as we come to people, we're all sinners. I'm in the same boat as you. I'm not superior to you. I'm a guilty, wretched sinner that deserves a judgment of God just like you do. And the only reason I'm not going to suffer it is because I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me on the cross. That's the only reason when I stand before God, why should I let you in? Well, I'm a good person. My good has outweighed my bad. No, there's only one reason. I don't deserve to get in. I place my faith in Jesus, your son. That's the only reason. That's the only reason I have. And that's the only reason I need. And that's the only reason they need. But we have to communicate that to them and help them understand it. Last week, we uh, had some rain. We postponed our outreach, which we're going to do. This week, we're going to be heading towards the park. I don't know if there will be that many people in it. So um, if there aren't, we'll go around kind of to the neighborhoods around there and just pray with people and share with people. Uh, But I just want to close as we hear this and we recognize there is a deception from the enemy upon people to convince them that they're good, to convince them they don't need God. And let's just ask the Lord to work in hearts. So as we go out there and we share with people, and not just right after the service, but let's just pray in general because each one of us have family and friends and neighbors and coworkers, and the list goes on and on of people that we want to reach with the truth and I'm sure that many of you have shared and it seems like man they're just so hard they don't want to hear it this is why we pray this is why we ask the Lord to soften them to help them to prepare them for the good news but they first going to have to realize the bad news of where they're at so let's just take some time. If you want to pray for a particular person, I encourage you with that. If you want to just pray for the outreach we're about to do or just for outreach in general, let's just ask the Lord to give us boldness and work in lives so that we will be more effective in reaching people for him.